following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Matthew chapter 7 today, and our text is verses 15 through 23. So, uh, let's go ahead and read the text. Uh, Jesus says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. How many of you have ever been duped by a bad advertisement? Probably all of us at some point, right? So, you know, you're at the store and, and you look at the packaging for something and it looks really good. Or, or you see some commercial on TV that this product looks great and so you buy it. But then, you know, either you open up the package when you get home or when it comes in the mail and, and you look at the real thing and it's not anywhere near what you thought you were getting. And, uh, you know, for example, for me, I remember when I was in elementary school, uh, growing up in the, in the 90s, or late 80s, early 90s, that all my friends were extremely excited about Nike Air basketball shoes. And so I remember my friends telling me that the air pockets in, in the heels of these shoes that they would make my shoes lighter and, and more bouncy. And, and so I would, you know, I, I would suddenly be able to run faster and jump higher. Now, now, as a kid, growing up in Illinois back then, we all wanted to be like Mike. We all wanted to be Michael Jordan. And so I thought that sounded awesome. So I remember you know, begging my parents for some Air Jordans. And, and, um, and so I finally got a pair of Nikes. I don't think I ever had some Air Jordans, technically speaking. But when I finally got my first pair, I was so excited to test them out. You know, put them on, go out in the basketball court. I was expecting to run fast, jump high. But you know what? I wasn't any faster, and my vertical didn't grow at all when I put on those shoes. You know, I was just as slow, and, and, and my vertical was just as small as it had ever been. And, you know, it really is amazing to think, you know, that, that I thought... You know, that, that a little air pocket in my shoe was going to like, you know, suddenly make me Michael Jordan. But, but that's how, how I was, and, and it really is just amazing in general uh, how gullible we can be. And, and thankfully, most of the time, it just costs us a few dollars and maybe a slice of pride. But, but in our text for today, Jesus warns that spiritual gullibility can cost us our souls. And and Jesus is going to command us in verse 15, beware of the false prophets. 
And he follows with, a very, with some very important instructions that we all need to hear whether we've been saved for five weeks or for 50 years. And so the text begins in verse 15 where Jesus commands us. Again, he says in verse 15, beware of the false prophets. Now, now this kind of warning is, is nothing new within the Scriptures. So before Israel... Uh, even entered the land of Canaan. Moses warned them out in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 13 that, that false prophets were going to rise up in their midst. And they needed to be careful to discern the prophets to see who was from God and who was not. And then, for example, some 800 years later, when uh, just before the captivity, Jeremiah strongly condemned uh, false prophets who came to Israel and said that they were going to defeat the Babylonians when God had clearly said that was not the case. And then you jump to the New Testament. And the New Testament aggressively confronts false prophets. In fact, just about every epistle that is in the New Testament includes some sort of warning, some sort of confrontation of false prophets. And specifically, Galatians, Colossians, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude are almost exclusively dedicated to confronting heresy and false theology. So, so I know that sometimes we can get a little bored with, with doctrinal preaching and, and theology. You might hear, for example, when Pastor Tim was talking about uh, the, the deity and humanity of Christ in Sunday school, and you might think, you know, what is relevant about that? How does that matter? You know, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, they, they just want to talk about love and you know, let's, let's have a very positive message that, that makes us feel good and beats our felt needs. But, but folks, the Bible is clear that we cannot take doctrine for granted. That we must know the truth and we must beware of false prophets. And, and why is that? I mean, why do we need to be careful? Well, we'll notice that Jesus paints a graphic image of these guys. He says in verse 15 that they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Now, now two important realities emerge from that statement, and the first is, is that false prophets are deceptive. Now, that makes sense, right? Because imagine you know, some guy shows up at your door, and you open the door, and he says, Hi. My name is John, and I'm here to destroy your soul. Well, well you're, gonna, you're not going to give that guy a second look. You're going to slam the door in his face, and you're going to call all your neighbors and say, hey, John's here to destroy your soul. You're not going to listen to it. And, and so because of that, uh, influential false teachers don't show up at your house wearing a Satan costume. No, no, instead, they use Christian language. They're, they're going to dress like Christians. They're going to talk like Christians. They are going to lead you to believe that they belong and that there's nothing different between you and them. That's how they get an audience. And of course, they get that strategy from Satan himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13-15, through say of false prophets, it says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
So folks, false teachers, they will always say a lot of things that sound really good, really attractive. And generally speaking, the problem is not necessarily with what they say. Generally, the problem is with what they leave out. You know, that they talk all about this one perspective of theology and and totally ignore or hardly ever mention another side. And and that's a problem. Because, for example, you you can't really understand the grace of God without seeing it in relationship to His justice. You can't understand the humanity of Christ without seeing it in relationship to His deity. You can't understand the the human side of Scripture without seeing it in relationship to inspiration. You can't understand God's unity without seeing it in relationship to His Trinity. And on and on that goes. And yet what, what false teachers so often do is they slyly introduce heresy by by just talking about one thing instead of talking in relationship to the whole counsel of God. And and then from there, they they deceive people by exploiting the the fleshly desires that we all have in our hearts. Paul warned about this in in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance, notice, to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So, so what they do is they find some hook, something that you like, and they use that to pull you away from the truth of God's Word. So, so I hope that all of you stay at LifePoint forever and ever. All right, But if you ever need to look for a church, don't just assume that every church has the same theology and the same philosophy. You know, that, that, that yeah, you know, they're Christians, so, so every church's doctrinal statement's basically the same, and, and you never even take a look at it. You never think about those things. No, the reality is, and, and, and so what then happens is, is we think, well, every church is basically the same, so I can just look for the things that, that I like, my preferences. No, the first issue that you should always consider is faithfulness to the Word of God. Is this a place where where God's Word is taught and where God's Word is upheld? The same goes for the books that you read. The guys that you listen to on the radio or on the internet. Be discerning. Because false teachers don't tell you they are wolves. They want you to believe they are sheep. And they are very subtle and oftentimes very convincing. And sadly, I could tell you story after story, and probably most of you know people who were deceived, who who were led astray by some guy, and and maybe their faith was entirely shipwrecked because some guy got a hold of their heart and pulled them away from the truth of Christ. And, And so they're deceptive, but it's not just that they are deceptive. Jesus also warns us that false teachers are destructive. And Jesus says They are ravenous wolves. That's a scary statement, isn't it? And similarly, Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock from among your own selves. Or excuse me, and from among your own selves, men will arise 
speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So so what's Paul telling us and what's Jesus telling us? Is that a false prophet is never pursuing the good of the sheep. He wants to eat them. He wants to use them for his own purposes. And sadly, the American church is littered with with these slick-looking false teachers. And and man, they really know how to butter up a crowd. And and they they sound sincere. You know, so many of them, they've got big personalities. They've got gravitas about them. And and, and they know how to, you know, they're they're funny. They, They can tell a good story. They, they can tickle your ears. They, they tell people things they want to hear. And so they build these massive empires. Huge crowds. TV ministry, radio ministry, lots of books. And oftentimes, big bank accounts. And all those things. But, but generally speaking, at some point, it all crumbles. And it becomes obvious that this man was never serving the Lord. He was serving himself. And his path is littered with wounded and even dead sheep who who believed a lie. They gave sacrificially to this guy. And and sadly, they never matured in Christ because they weren't being taught the Word of God. Or maybe they were led entirely away from the Gospel of Christ. So, So I don't care how compelling some guy may be, how interesting he is, You know, do not run away from any egomaniac, pastor or preacher, who uses God's church instead of serving it. Because a faithful shepherd will always imitate the character of the Savior. The the good shepherd. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verses 9-11, through He said there, I am the door. Speaking there, the door of the sheepfold. If anyone enters through Me, he will be saved. And he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So Jesus is clear that that we can't just pretend like none of this stuff matters and let's just love Jesus and get along. That that false teachers are very present in the world. And if you are going to thrive spiritually, and if the people under your care are going to thrive spiritually, then we must be discerning and we must beware of false prophets. So so that's the command that Jesus gives. And, And then notice that He follows by telling us how to spot them. And He gives us a test in verses 16 through 20, and that is that we must examine the fruit of their life. Now, now when you look at verse 15 in in isolation, it it might cause you to panic, right? So so beware of of wolves in sheep's clothing. And you might think, well, well, how can I ever know the truth? How how do I know who is trustworthy and who is not? How how can I trust anyone if there's potentially wolves running around in sheep's clothing? But, But here in verses 16 through 20, Jesus reassures us that through the wisdom of, spirit, of the Spirit, we are able to identify who is a true shepherd and who is a wolf in sheep's clothing. And so he tells us in verse 16, very simply, you will know them by their fruit. And he says the same thing in verse 20. He says again, you will know them by 
their fruit. And, and, and so then he goes on and he explains how that is by switching from the shepherding analogy of verse 15 to a couple farming analogies in verses 16 through 20. And so the first analogy is at the end of verse 16. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Now, now the background to that statement is probably uh, a couple things. First of all, in Israel, you had a bush called the buckthorn. And, and this bush called the buckthorn, it, w- it would make these little black berries. And so if you're looking at one of these bushes from a long distance, you, you see these berries, and you might be deceived into thinking that they are grapes. So, so it looks like, like a valuable plant with, with fruit on it. But in actuality, these little berries are, are worthless. And then the second uh, illustration there is that the flowers on certain thistles looked very similar to, to the flowers on a fig tree. And so a fig tree, of course, is, is very valuable and precious because of the fruit that it could generate. And so, and so Jesus says that, that from a distance you might be deceived into thinking that this thistle is a fig tree, when in reality it's just a useless thistle. But in both instances, Jesus says, if you simply examine the fruit, the difference is obvious. So Jesus says, look at the fruit. And then he gives a second illustration in verses 17 through 19. He says there, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this is not an exact parallel, but when I read these verses, I'm reminded of some apple trees that we had on our farm when I was a kid. And so we had a couple of really big apple trees and then a smaller one. And I remember a couple years where these trees, you know, in the middle of summer, you looked at them and they were loaded with apples. And so you look at it and you think, man, we are going to have a huge harvest. And so, and so these apples are growing. And, and, and I remember getting excited about when they got ripe and turned red and we could pick them and eat them. Well, well, then closer to when they were supposed to be ripe, these huge webs began growing all over the tree. And these webs were filled with worms. Now, now if you stand way back from the tree... And you look at it, and you see all these red apples, and you think, wow, that looks really attractive. But then if you walk up, you put your hand through one of these webs and grab one of these apples, and and start to examine it, or if you're so bold as to take a bite of it, you're going to find pretty quickly that you want nothing to do with these apples. They're full of worms. And and so, from a distance, everything looks good. But, but if you closely examine the situation, you can see that these apples have a problem. And similarly, Jesus says that the condition of the fruit reflects the health of the tree. You know, that, that a, 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 a tasty, healthy fruit reflects the fact that the tree is, is in good condition and is healthy. And on the other hand, if the fruit is, is bad and, and sour and, and disgusting, that tells you that the tree itself is diseased. And so the point here is not that difficult. Or the point is, is that it's not that difficult to tell the difference between, between a healthy tree and, and a diseased tree. All you have to do is put forth some basic effort. So, so Jesus is saying, don't settle for first impressions. And don't ignore obvious danger signs when they're there. 
No, no, take the time to examine the fruit, to look at the life, to look at the person, to look at the theology. And, and if, as you do that, you can distinguish a false prophet or teacher from someone who is truly speaking on God's behalf. And when you see someone that, that clearly is not being faithful to the Word of God, then walk away and cling to those who are teaching you the truth of Scripture. So, so you can do this. Now, now, you might hear all that and say, well, 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 what fruit do I look for? What kinds of things are, are going to be reflective either of faithfulness or unfaithfulness? And, and I'd like to mention, and, and you could, there could be all sorts of things that we could bring up, but I'd just like to mention three basic categories. And the first is passion for Scripture and for truth. So, so again, 2 Timothy chapter 4 says... Um, let me get to the right spot. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Speaking there of preaching the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away for their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So folks, what, what, what Paul is telling Timothy is that a faithful teacher of God's Word will always stay as close to the Bible as he possibly can. You know, that, that, that his job, his goal, is to be faithful to the Scriptures. In contrast, you ought to beware of any Bible teacher who plays fast and loose with the Word of God. Now, now it might be that he quotes a lot of Scripture. But just because someone quotes the Bible to you does not mean that they are being faithful to what the text means, right? So, so if he abuses the text, twists it to serve his own purposes, you know, he's not careful to set it in context and, and to demonstrate from the text what in fact it means, he's not preaching the Bible. Even if he's quoting the Bible, he's preaching to you his opinions and his agenda. So, so it might be that, that he is even orthodox. And, and I've heard plenty of guys over the years who, who believe right doctrine, but, but they abuse the Word of God. So, so it might be that he is even orthodox. But church history has demonstrated time and time again that if we are not careful to uphold this book, to honor what God inspired the authors to say, then it never leads anywhere healthy. And so we ought to walk away from anyone who is not faithful to this word. And, and we ought to cling to those who are faithful. So, so passion for Scripture and truth. I think the second major category that we need to keep in mind is doctrinal faithfulness. So 2 John verses 9-11 through 11 say, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both a father and the son. So if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Now, these are strong words, right? You know, so some guy shows up in town and he says he's a preacher of God's word. 
But, but he is not faithful to the truth of Scripture. Now John says, don't even let him in your house. Don't give him any sort of Christian recognition because he is not faithful to the truth. So it doesn't matter how compelling someone may be or even how sincere they might be. They might really believe the things that they're saying. If they are not faithful to the theology and especially the gospel as presented in the Scriptures, then what does John say? They do not have God. So it doesn't matter how moral he is, kind he is, loving he is. If he denies the truth of Scripture, he does not have God. Now I suppose some guy might come along and claim, well, yeah, but I found something in the Bible that no one has ever seen before. Now, now I suppose that that is technically possible. But we do believe in, in, in what is called the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture. So, so the idea that someone's going to come along and find some, some key truth in God's Word that no one has seen for 2,000 years is extremely unlikely. You know, and that's why uh, doctrinal creeds and confessions are, are so valuable for us as Christians that, that they anchor what we believe and think in, in, in what Christians have believed for centuries. So, so folks, you know, value faithfulness. Don't value novelty. We, we need to be people who are committed to the truth of Scripture as laid out in His Word. And, and then the third thing I think that we need to watch for is a godly life. A godly life. And 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, uh, describe a group of false teachers. And, and might, you maybe remember from, from last uh, spring, uh, going through this, uh, that, that there were these false teachers that were affecting the church and, uh, that, w- that Peter was addressing. And he describes them here. He says, They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. You know, and, and sadly, I mean, we, we read that and we think, how, how, could, a, how could a pastor or, or a Bible teacher be doing those things? But, but it happens all the time. I, I was just, I've been reading a book uh, on uh, 20th century Baptist history uh, recently and and I was reading this week about, uh, about a very prominent uh, pastor, and uh, uh, J. Frank Norris, and, and, and scores of women, not scores, literally, many, many women were making all sorts of accusations about impropriety and inappropriate conduct and even sexual abuse. You know, this guy's powerful. He's effective. He's got a huge following and people are scared of him. And so, no one ever stands up to him. And he just keeps going. And it happens other places. You know, that, that, that very, there's so many stories of, of women who are abused, men who abuse power, they lie repeatedly, but they just continue to preach. And, and people just simply you know, brush it off because he's so powerful and he's so influential. And, and how could someone who is generating so much fruit possibly not be right with God? But Jesus says, You don't know them by their statistics. You know them by the fruit of their life. 
It's not about how many books they sell or how, many cra- or how big of a crowd they can draw. It's about whether or not they match what God's Word says. Now, Titus chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 say, uh, of the overseer or the pastor, that he must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And those are some really important descriptions of a godly life. And a godly life you know, is, 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 not, is a non-negotiable for anyone who would speak on God's behalf. After all, I mean, how could you really trust someone to, to declare God's truth to you if he refuses to submit to it himself? And so, so beware of false prophets. And again, they are everywhere in our society. You know, and the internet has only made it worse. Because you can create a YouTube channel, you can put up a website, and have zero accountability. You know, I, I mean, here's just one simple thing. You know, if a guy has no church authority in his life, he's probably not worth listening to. Because if he doesn't want to submit to some sort of authority, then there's probably right there a good sign that there are other problems going on. And they're everywhere. You know, and, and, and they're, they're going to appeal to you in different ways. You know, so some guys, they're going to appeal to you by going after your fleshly desires. So, so they're going to tell you that, that you can be right with God and you can also do all the things that your flesh wants to do. And of course, people like that. You know, there's others that, that tell you that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and take all your problems away. And who doesn't want to hear that? That I can love God and God will fix all my problems. You know, there's others that are just going to spout off all sorts of psychobabble and you know, make you feel good about yourself and you know, tell you over and over and over again that God loves you and, you know, and, and pump up your ego and not really say anything else. And, and who doesn't want to feel good about themselves? You know, there's others that appeal to your pride. You know, maybe they, they offer you some you know, mystical knowledge. You know, the ability to, to dream dreams or, or have a, a, a knowledge that no one else has and that's not even in the Bible. You know, or, or maybe it's they appeal to your pride by saying that you know, they've got this code of righteousness that can make you better than all those other people out there and so you can look down your nose at people and feel really good about yourself. And the reality is, whatever fleshly impulse you have, there's some guy on YouTube that will feed you a form of Christianity that, that fits what you want to be and do. So do not be deceived. Examine their fruit based on the Word of God. All right, but maybe you hear all this and, and you think, I don't know, Pastor, is this really a big deal? Like, can't we just love Jesus and get along and, you know? Or, or you're thinking, I mean, you're thinking, he's talking about so-and-so that I really like. But, but he can't be that bad. I mean, he's a good guy. Or, or you might think, well, well Pastor, you know, don't worry about it. It'll, it'll all work out in the end. You know, that, that, that God's going to, you know, at the end, it, it, we're all just going to end up in the same place and everything's going to be fine. Well, well, Jesus thought that you might wonder that way. And so in verses 21 through 23, he, he closes the text 
with a sober warning that is intended to drive home his point. He warns that many false believers will be condemned to hell. He says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now these are probably some of the most sober verses that you will find in all of the Bible. And Jesus drives home the danger of false prophets by warning us how deceitful they can be and how destructive they are. And I'd like to make three observations about these verses. And the first is, is that false faith can be very impressive. So, so first, uh, verse 21 says that some of these false prophets, they call Jesus Lord, Lord. Now, now it is true that, that the Greek word for Lord is the word kurios, and at times it could just refer to a, a master. You know, someone with, with authority, or it could be a title of respect. But, but here you see that, it, that it's repeated, right? So it's Lord, Lord. And in the context of the Gospels, it's clearly a significant confession about the nature of Christ. So, so to call Jesus Lord is to confess that, that He is the Lord of Lords. That He is the Sovereign Savior. That He is the second person of the Trinity. Now, now to call Jesus Lord, in our context, you know, we, we live in a context where lots of people would say Jesus is Lord, right? So it's not a big deal. In, 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 in you know, 20th first century America, for someone to say, Jesus is Lord, and, and we think, what's the big deal? Yeah, but think about the first century world, where, where the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, was, was a new teaching. It was being sold for the very first time. Or think about the fact that confessing Christ as Lord could potentially be very costly for people at work, or it could lead to persecution. So, so the idea that, that someone would boldly declare that Jesus is Lord is a big confession. That catches your attention. But, but it's not enough. And then verse 22 goes and takes it a step further. You know, Jesus says, that, you know, and so the picture in verse 22 is, is of people at the final judgment. You know, where, where heaven or hell are at stake. They're standing before God at the last day. And, and Jesus describes these people as reminding God of all the things that they have done on His behalf. You know, they say, and notice here, it's not just that they've done these things, they emphasize in all three statements that they did these things in your name. So, so Jesus says there's going to be people at the final judgment that they're going to look at Jesus and they are going to say, you know, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Now, now, by the way, Jesus gives no indication that those are false claims, right? So, so we ought to assume that at least in some instances, these people genuinely did these things. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They performed miracles. Now, I don't know about you, 
But if I saw some guy perform a miracle, like that would, catch, that would capture my attention. You know, and really, you know, Judas is the, is the poster boy for this warning. Because just a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends His disciples out to preach. And He gives them the power to, to cast out demons and to perform miracles. So we ought to assume that, that Judas did these very things. He cast out demons. He performed miracles. And yet we know, based on how his life ended, that it was all just a hypocritical show. Now you might be wondering, well, well how is that possible? Like, like, how could God allow a false prophet to do these things? Now, now it could be that in many instances, it, it's just a, an impressive ruse. Like so many of the, the guys on TV. Like they're not really healing someone or making a genuine prophecy. It's all just made up. And that's possible. It could be that at times, Satan empowers people to do the miraculous. Like he did with the magicians in Pharaoh's court during the days of Moses. Or it might be that for some good reason that we will never understand, God legitimately enables someone to to do something miraculous as He did with Judas. But whatever it is, Jesus makes a strong statement here that external signs and external fruit, they they can be very impressive. But, But that does not mean that someone is God's mouthpiece. And so my second observation is, is that false faith will end in hell. And verse 21 says that just because someone professes Jesus as Lord does not mean that they will be in heaven. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's pretty blunt, isn't it? And just because someone tells you, I believe in Jesus, does not mean they're going to heaven. And then verse, uh, uh, verses 22 and 23 are especially powerful. I mean, just imagine the emotion of verses 22 and 23 being played out in real life. And these guys, they show up at the final judgment and they are convinced that they are on their way to heaven. And so they plead their case to God. And they rattle off all the impressive things that they have done. And then Jesus replies with what has to be the most gut-wrenching pronouncement in all the Bible. Like, like you think about words that you never want to hear. I mean, this is, this is the top of the list. Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So, so Jesus is saying as, as clearly as he can that, that, that true disciples do not merely say that Jesus is Lord, and they don't merely put on an external religious show. You know, they don't just, I mean, think back on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the, the, think back to chapter 6. So, so the fact that someone gives alms, prays, fasts, or here in these verses, the fact that they perform miracles does not in and of itself mean that they are disciples of Christ. And Jesus tells us very clearly that hell will be littered with people who thought they were right with God, who even claimed Him 
and, and professed faithfulness to him and, and did works on his behalf. No, no, instead, he tells us that the people, excuse, and, and so, so, so Jesus is clear that, that he will not judge by a human fleshly standard. He is clear here that, that those who, who stand before him and make this case will face the worst judgment imaginable. And then the final point that we see in verse 20, or the final point, is that genuine believers pursue genuine obedience. Of course, Jesus already talked about good fruit, right? And so, and so uh, there in verses 16 through 20, and notice the promise he gives in verse 21. He says, who is going to enter the kingdom? He who does the will of my Father in heaven. That statement reflects on the genuine righteousness, of course, that, that Jesus has articulated throughout the sermon. And he is saying as clearly as he can that, that true disciples do not merely say that Jesus is Lord. And they don't merely put on that impressive external religious show. You know, they don't just do religious deeds and, and do things that are impressive. No, Jesus says that people who are His disciples, the people who will be welcomed into the kingdom, are the ones who do the will of my Father. So in other words, they have a genuine heart of submission. It doesn't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. They live the life that we have seen the last few months in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, of course, I want to be clear that Jesus is not saying that they earn their salvation by their works. Or that a believer can lose his salvation by slowing down. Now, now what does verse 23 say? He says, I never knew you. So, so it's not that these guys lost their salvation. You know that at one time, they were performing miracles because they were saved, and then they lost it. No. What Jesus is saying is, 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 that, is that genuine faith, faith that saves, is never alone that it always manifests itself in a transformed life. So, so this warning here calls for serious reflection. And Jesus is clear here in other places that all of us are going to stand before God someday. We're all going to give an account of our lives. And so, what is it that you are banking on to get you into heaven? What is your source of confidence that when you stand before God, He is going to say, enter into the joy of your Master? You know, are you trusting in the fact that you call yourself a Christian? Are you simply trusting in the fact that you believe that Jesus is God? Are you trusting in the fact that you grew up in a Christian home? You know, is your confidence that Everyone assumes you're a Christian. Is your confidence that you've enjoyed some sort of ministry success? You know, you, you do a good job with people, and so, man, if, if there's fruit, then I must be a Christian. And folks, Jesus is clear that if you are trusting in anything but Christ alone, who is and, and, and will continue to transform your life, you will be gravely disappointed someday. So, so if you have never put your faith in Christ for salvation, 
then please repent of your sin and be saved. I mean, do not just haphazardly assume that your soul will be saved someday. Because Jesus is very clear that not everyone who thinks they are his child really is. So if you have questions, you have doubts, get them settled today. And if you are saved, then I would simply urge you, as verse 14 says, to stay on the narrow path. Do not be deceived by the showmanship, the worldly pool, and the popularity of false prophets and worldly religion. I mean, it's everywhere. So, so stay on the lonely, hard path of discipleship. If everyone's going that way, that's probably not a good sign. So stay on the lonely path. By God's grace, do the will of your Father every day. And when you sin, confess it and rest in the forgiveness that God gives. And do all of it with eyes of faith that believe that God's grace is enough to sustain you. You can be discerning. You can recognize the fruit and and you can, by His grace, stay on the narrow path. And believe ultimately that that the goal, that the destination at the end of the narrow path is worth it all. There is life for all of eternity. So stay on the narrow path. Lord, we thank You uh, for this difficult, hard, and yet necessary warning from our Savior. And Lord, we acknowledge today that it is a reflection of Your love and Your grace that You would put this in Your Word. And so, Father, I pray for any here who have not yet been born again. And and Lord, maybe they've been deceived by false teachers and false prophets. Maybe they've just never thought seriously about what it is and is not to be a child of God. God, I pray that they would repent of their sins and be born again so that they are ready for the day that they stand before You. Please, Lord, do that. And for those of us that know You as Savior, God, I pray that You would build in us hearts of discernment and, and Lord, a, a willingness to, to think, to anchor our minds in Scripture. And God, help us to, to trust You, to do Your will daily, and to walk by faith in Your eternal purpose. And so God, give us grace to do these things. Please protect us as a church. Please especially protect those who are young in the faith our children, from being deceived by all the the wicked voices that are out there in our culture. And Father, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would watch over us and keep us all. And that, Lord, someday we would stand before You in glory. In Christ's name, Amen.